0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Fight. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include. Surveillance
1: Turtling, the US versus UK Lingo Smackdown, Betrayal in the Party, and the Spear of Destiny. The impatient expression on the Game Master's face tells us that we have nodded off during the Gaming Hut, and as we look up, we find that everyone at the table is watching us. Robin, you have thoughts about everyone watching you, and these are thoughts you can share on the podcast as opposed to with a trained medical professional, so why don't you start us off?
0: Yes, indeed. So this is our follow-up from last week's discussion of PRISM. Uh, I thought that we would, uh, in the Tradecraft Hut, be able to transition from uh, discussing uh, that exciting secret, uh, not quite so secret anymore surveillance system to what happens when players feel that their every movement is being watched and how that causes them to fall into a defensive crouch. Since we last talked about this, Ken, have there been, before we get to that, have there been any developments in the ongoing real-life story that you uh, feel the desire to comment upon?
1: Well, it's um, we're, we're still obviously in the early stages of finding out exactly what what's the difference between what he revealed that is actually an NSA program and what he implied is possible. And obviously without, you know, being there at the uh, director clapper's desk, we don't know what's uh, actually going on. But, uh, for example, you know, we have the certainty that the uh, NSA is pretty much taking pictures of all the metadata. And we still are in questions about exactly whose metadata they're sifting through with their little NSA fingers. We've got the exciting news that the NSA, um, uh, was bugging the European Union, uh, both in embassies and in EU function rooms, which...
0: Everybody knows this, but once they find out, boy, uh, the, uh, (laughs) the matter hits the propeller. You have
1: to wonder how dumb people think that the voting population is, because surely anyone who spends two seconds thinking about it knows this is already going on. It's like finding out, you know, what? The government is using radar to track
0: hurricanes. I'm outraged. I wonder if even, like, the high-level officials just sort of exist in a state of denial, which is the only state they can really exist in in order to do anything. And it's just one of those things where, you know, once reminded of this, it comes as as a shock, even though presumably the very first thing when you become... A leader or high-level official of any Western nation is that you're told. Well, it's not just the Chinese spying on you; it's also our uh, our partners as well. So be mm-hmm. careful what you email and careful what you say. But people just uh, aren't, and when they discover that their uh, conversations have been listened to, there's a, a sense of violation that you know overturns that previous intellectual knowledge.
1: And, and maybe it's it's something with being in the European Union and having sort of the goal of transnationalism and overcoming boundaries and things like that as part of your political culture. Obviously, in America, we, you know, know instinctively that all foreigners are shifty and not to be trusted. <laughs> and so therefore, it doesn't really come as a super shock to find out that our little buddies Israel have got spies, you know, lurking around or Britain or wherever. But maybe in, you know, France and Germany, where they've been spending the last 60, 60 years sitting in, you know, cross-legged position, chanting a mantra that uh, nationalism is dead, to discover that it exists is maybe more of a a stunning shock to them than it would be to us
0: right but they're not so hippy dippy as to not have intelligence services and <laughs> not be doing this too so it's,
1: one one would think so but then one would think all manner of things would be obvious to european heads of state that don't seem to be
0: well i, I guess as humans we also you know feel immune to death until it uh, hits <laughs> us in the face so maybe uh, being spied upon is one of those things but yes. uh, people who are Not unaware of being spied upon are your player characters in your role-playing game. And uh, one of the challenges can be, if you uh, have a group that is prone to turtling, as many groups are, is dealing with their ability to take real-life knowledge of the extent of... The surveillance capabilities of the modern state and project it either backwards into a fantasy world where, of course, there are all sorts of scrying abilities and ways to replicate the way that long-distance uh, telecommunications and therefore long-distance surveillance works. Or, of course, if you're in a future setting, you have to assume an even more super-duper level of trivially easy surveillance. So. What happens when uh, it's a standard plot element, of course, in most adventure plotting for the bad guys to find out what the good guys are doing and try to do something about it. So how do you counter that impulse to suddenly stop doing anything when the players become conscious of how difficult it would be to proceed if the bad guys are actually watching them? Well, part of
1: it obviously depends on the sort of the mode or the tenor of the game that you're running in a game where you're uh modeling, you know, say James Bond. Uh you know, James Bond goes into casinos which are literally the most surveilled places in the universe and carries out spy activities. Which seems to be the last thing in the world that a real spy would do, but we accept it because casinos you know, are fun and glittery and, and full of uh, girls in low cut dresses. And, and, all and one other... of
0: his main abilities, actually, is that people know who he is,
1: mm-hmm. and, and that... so therefore do something stupid that lets him shoot them in the face. Yes, and and so you get, or if you're replicating that sort of you know larger than life, uh, you know, pulp or or cinematic or whatever adjective you want to use type of spy the notion of enemy surveillance is relatively irrelevant because the game is pointing towards confrontation anyway. And if the enemies don't know where you are, they can't send uh, comically inept goons to ambush you. And I think that if you're within that sort of tenor, it's easier to get people off the dime. It's when you're playing a game of gritty realism or sort of um, uh, borderline horror, your sort of x file genre, that you have to start wondering exactly why uh, the uh, the bad guys, the all-seeing conspiracy haven't just got a guy with a sniper rifle across the street from you because, of course, one would assume that if you were actually discommoding the conspiracy, that would be step two.
0: Although even in mode A, it can be difficult to keep reminding players to get them to take on board that they're in a Bondian universe, that uh, as many times as you tell them hey, this is a forgiving world, if the players have been either trained to caution by previous games, which were supposed to be in a Bondian world, but then burned them through surveillance, or whether they are just uh, by disposition uh, paranoid or concerned for their uh, ability to act, or are looking for reasons not to act, which is often sometimes a subconscious impulse that I think drives a lot of turtling, they you can only say so many times, this is a forgiving universe. So that that becomes a challenge as well.
1: Yeah, and I think that the the job then is to sort of create uh, scenarios in which surveillance doesn't matter. And of course, the traditional method uh, the, the thriller writers have used is to have a, a bunch of guys with guns bust in and start shooting the place up. That at least gets a fight scene going that gets people on the move. That makes them find out where those guys came from. That makes them sort of go around... You can plant evidence on a dead, uh, mook, or you can, uh, have them, you know, shout, uh, hail Hydra will last a thousand years. Anything it is to, to, anything you need to to get them, uh, moving down the path that you wanted them to, to follow in the first place before the great turtling. Or the other possibility that I'm very fond of is, since the bad guys are watching them, you make it absolutely clear that their turtle location is less safe because the bad guys have got it mapped. So, you can begin if you want to by them, you know, returning to the safe house to find the dead body of their sister, you know, staked out on the floor or full of vampire germs or whatever it is. Or they come back to the safe house to find it blown up. Or to, uh, you know, they're they're stopped on the street by a urchin selling a copy of the Guardian, and while they are paying to uh, read the latest Prism revelations, their safe house blows up behind them. Uh, some sort of indication that you know, turtling is Im- is just as impossible in a world of surveillance as any other action, so you might as well move out and find the bad guys so you can shoot
0: them. Right, and on a less catastrophic note, what you can do is you can build in a scene that actually occurs in the fictional reality of the game, whether it's a pulpy reality or a more realistic techno-thriller reality, and allow them to find and overcome their surveillance so that they know they have at least a window where they can safely operate before the surveillance kicks in again and that rather than set that up as a die roll where they might or might not succeed in overcoming the surveillance, if you're trying to create the lesson that they can have at least bubbles of safety for themselves in this universe, you set it up so that you let them succeed even on a failed result. And the question is not do they overcome the surveillance, but do they either overcome the surveillance and that's all the benefit they get, or if they really succeed, they then get to introduce a piece of disinformation that will buy them uh, even more time and that you maybe want to break the idea that they are operating without very much information and let that success also indicate how much time they've got, how much safety they've got, before that again is blown and the uh, staked sisters start showing up on the floor again. Right. There's a great
1: bit in the TV show Alias that they had where um, I I forget what it was, like a ballpoint pen full of magic uh, circuitry and you would click it and it defeated all electronic surveillance in the room for two minutes. And of course it was J.J. Abrams uh, sort of metaphor for the fact that you can only speak honestly to another person for two minutes before your instinct to lie takes over. But just as a as a role playing notion that you have a, a a gadget that will defeat surveillance, but it defeats it in a localized space for a localized time. It can't be expanded. It can't be built out. Um, you know, you you can't make more or whatever. But it gives you what you were saying that bubble in which you can make a sudden left. You can dive into the subway. You can escape from the surveillance just long enough that the game returns to a chase to a thriller as opposed to a um uh, uh you know a, a, a question of how many shotgun shells do we have in the basement.
0: Right, you can also give the characters abilities that allow them to spread disinformation because we know in the real world of omnipresent surveillance, the way to escape notice is to be lost in a great mass of information, and the difficulty then begins finding it, you know, becoming a needle in a haystack. So you can then say, well, what is your disinformation strategy that you're setting up? So rather than have the bad guys just looking for you in your headquarters or in the shop where you're going to get your car repaired, you can then create false signals of yourself at a whole bunch of different places, sort of the espionage equivalent of being a displacer beast, as it were, Mm -hmm. and that way you can have the players actively doing something to defeat this omnipresent surveillance, and that will give them... A, more of a sense of confidence that they can operate and do other things, but also it will allow them to be active and allow them to feel a sense of success and control because ultimately, turtling is what occurs when people feel a loss of control and feel a loss of hope that they can even exert control if they actually do anything.
1: Yeah, I mean, at some point, I think what you, you're you talking about subconscious motivations, although I'm cherry of, of a lot of that, but I think that if you get players who are repeated turtlers, that's the kind of play that they're going to aim for, and there's going to be a limited amount you can do about that. Like you said, a player who doesn't want to engage with the setting is really, re- you know, reacting to the setting. Either you haven't presented it in an interesting fashion, or they would really rather play in a game that deliberately has less danger and deliberately has, uh, or, or has more knowable danger. Your standard dungeon crawl or, um, uh, a world in which they're they're, they're by fiat is more freedom of of action without being observed. It's something like that, and that's the signal that you maybe need to be listening to. And you can't play techno-thrillers with those players, so you need to find other players or stop playing techno-thrillers.
0: And, of course, this goes beyond just the thriller genre, as I suggested earlier, and the solutions are similar in the different other genres. So, for example, in a fantasy genre, you could make available to the players a set of abilities either through magic items or spells that allow them to not just block the surveillance of others, which is fun but sort of inert, and go a step beyond that into, well, how do you create the illusion that you are in three different places at once and so that you can take that example I gave earlier or many of the examples you gave earlier and translate them into other genres. So it's not just a matter of something that only happens in espionage, but you could again posit, you know, if you posit a near future where, or a far future even, where surveillance technology is omnipresent, well, presumably there are countermeasures to that as well. And you could play with sort of cool, different, impossible ways to defeat that level of surveillance that, again, make the players seem more in control of what they're doing and actively doing things rather than just sort of waiting in in horror for uh, things to happen to them. And another thing you can just do is you can, if people are turtling and you don't want to go to that well again, you can just say, well, of course there's omnipresent surveillance, so how do you use that to your advantage to just spread disinformation, not through Uh, technology, but just through what it is that you're doing, right? And that gets you into the classic pattern of the heist, where you typically see the protagonist doing one thing, you think they're pursuing one set of goals. Well, that's just a display set of goals to hide what it is that you're really doing, and you will reveal having done later. Although inviting
1: players to do two sets of planning is perhaps a bridge too far for most game masters.
0: Right. And so, again, that brings us to the Retroactive planning crunchy bits that we've talked about in the past and that you get in, for example, gumshoe with preparedness, you Mm. could create, you know, a brilliant scheme role where you just jump ahead to, uh, now we see if your brilliant scheme succeeds or fails. And if it fails, well, then the bad things we're worried about happens. And if it succeeds, then you explain how you used your brilliant scheme to get past them.
1: Yeah. I I think that, um, as long as you can express what the, what, what what you said—the display goal is in a sentence, and the real goal in you know maybe a three-step process—that should be enough unless the uh, the the heist sequence or the or the uh, the sham sequence is intended to be the main set piece of the campaign. And, and if it's supposed to be the equivalent of the big fight at the end, then yeah, go ahead and complexify it up. But I think that my experience uh, designing and running Knights Black Agents has taught me that it's so much more fun if the planning is moved to the back end of the process that. You know, you you begin in medias res, and now it's, all right, what did you put in place to prevent this from messing with you? And then the players are like, um, 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 we put uh simulators over in the planter, and they're going to go off and make them think there's a gunfight over there. And so, bam, you have to roll to see if you were able to do that without the surveillance catching you, and sure enough, your, uh, your filter or whatever is good enough, and then that part of the plan can move forward. And it's a lot better than, like I say, having, you know, an hour or two hours spent not just in planning, but also in planning the diversion, which rapidly puts the campaign up its own tail. I do want to say that in the super technological world, once you've got, you know, super realistic holograms that can, in theory, spoof a uh, surveillance thing and AIs that can control the holograms, you've gotten perilously close to uh, awesome uh, teleoperated henchmen, which can both complexify the GM's life, but also, I think, make the game a great deal more fun, assuming you have a set of mechanics that can handle that kind of thing. Savage Worlds can do it, I'm pretty sure, and I'm sure there are other systems.
0: Until the next episode when your holograms achieve free will and start spying on you. Exactly, when they uh, league up with Moriarty. Uh, Well, on uh, a supervillain team up across time and space, I guess we have concluded our first segment, and it's time to move on to the next one. And that segment is the word hut. Ken and I, of course, are writers. We dive into the pool of language, and I thought today we would do so in a bit of uh, kidding about, that ping-pongs from the idea that usage is different of uh, the English language uh, here in North America compared to Britain. And, of course, uh, in Canada, we sort of get the best of both worlds. We can uh, borrow uh, certain suffix endings from the UK and slang from... America, and uh, we even get an extra synonym for couch out of the deal. But I thought that we would uh, go uh, through the different terms, and uh, Ken and I, we can decide between us uh, which is better, the English or the American usage, and we'll see if we step beyond the bounds of petty nationalism and... uh, As
1: if there's such a thing.
0: (laughs) And uh, if we can actually manage to give the nod to any of the uh, English terms, or if we're just... uh, wedded to the American terms in which we are accustomed to dealing.
1: And I should note that we we are recording this during the sacred space between Canada Day and July 4th, so our North American nationalism will be at a feverish pitch. Uh, uh, yes, possibly. indeed.
0: I uh, still have the uh, requisite Canada Day hot dog in my uh, system from yesterday.
1: There you go. Giddy with fireworks smoke.
0: Indeed, yes. Um, I actually went down and watched uh, fireworks, or rather I watched a lot of people photograph su- fireworks with their cell phones. Um, but, to the point... Uh, Speaking
1: of not understanding how surveillance works. Uh, yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> um, so, can uh, the first term up for our eagle-eyed surveillance is uh, dummy versus pacifier. The English term is dummy. The American term is pacifier. This, of course, is the little rubber thing that you uh, chuck into an infant's mouth to uh, hopefully get it to stop crying. Uh, Which is the better term, dummy or pacifier?
1: The better term is binky, which is the American slang term for pacifier. Pacifier sounding cold and clinical and dummy just being idiotic.
0: I uh, think between the uh, two, I I sort of uh, prefer dummy, because you're a dummy if you think you're going to pacify a baby. Yes. (laughs) Here's a a subtler one. We have car park versus parking lot. Uh, This, of course, is a place where you go to uh, dig up your dead monarchs, or possibly uh, it seemed like Jimmy Hoffa for a little while there, but that did not materialize. So uh, can car park or parking lot? I think it would be
1: parking lot by a whisker, except... And maybe this is why it's just a whisker, except the kinks, uh, used car park so well in, uh, their immortal, uh, pop hit come dancing that I feel I, sh- I should not be excluding car park from, from the, uh, from the bounds of, of civilized usage. I, I think parking lot, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's clearer and it d- is differentiable from parking garage, since a car park could be either. Um, but I think that uh, I, I, I like car park a great deal, and I would hate to lose it.
0: I'm not sure I can articulate why exactly, but I think I like car park better for its absence of a verb. Right? The, the, uh, you know, the American one is, of course, much more action-oriented. It tells you that this is a place where you do a thing. And car park uh, sort of implies a, uh, an immobility, which, of course, is what is going on most of the time in a car park, whether you are uh, above it or uh, under it. The next one is a punctuation issue. Uh, Ken, do you prefer around dialogue single or double quotes? Double quotes,
1: obviously. Double quotes mark it off because single quotes look like apostrophes, and double quotes do not look like apostrophes. It's just a simple matter of reading rapidly and clearly. The double quote sets off dialogue more clearly and more plainly than a bunch of things that might be apostrophe S's uh, hanging around.
0: Now, I have to go with you on that one uh, for functional reasons, but I also like the relative spareness of the uh, single quote. It, uh, somehow a double quote seems to imply even a greater distrust uh, than uh, one would expect for a, a piece of dialogue. And uh, just on the page, I think I uh, have an affection for the single quote, even though for the reasons you cite, uh, we have to go with the double quote.
1: I think a lot of that is also because the Penguin uh, editions of books that you and I probably grew up reading, probably the same ones, uh, being print and pan and panther being printed in in Britain, all had the single quotes and their their fontography and typography was so great looking that I think it may have seduced us into thinking that it was worthwhile by dressing itself in such uh, such fine fashion.
0: There's a spare modernism about it that uh, Mm -hmm. the more sort of filigreed double quote does not quite get you. And this might be yet another installment of the Word Hut, but uh, sometimes I I sort of think that uh, you don't necessarily need to be consistent. Maybe there are some American things that should have uh, single quotes, uh, a futuristic uh, spare THX 1138 sort of world might uh, uh, be better depicted with single quotes.
1: Or maybe um, uh, the AIs all speak in single quotes and the people all speak in double quotes, something like that. Uh, Yeah, yeah,
0: you can um, mess around with people's expectations that way, and that's always a good thing to do. Uh, Next, we move on to two words that sound the same but are spelled differently. So which spelling do you prefer for curb, Ken? Is that K-E-R-B or C-U-R-B? Curb is
1: spelled C-U-R-B. K-E-R-B is is delightful and, and, and exciting in the same way that um, uh, spelling uh, key uh, with a uh, Q-U-A-I or jail with a G-A-O-L is. It's fun to look at because you know you're in magical foreign lands where they do things exotically, but it's spelled curbs, U-R-B, and we all know
0: that. Uh, I sort of feel like a, a curb is a possibly an undifferentiated green that you get on your sandwich. And so, yes, I'm unable to uh, step beyond my... Uh, home linguistic limitations on that one and I have to... And, and also the, the CU uh, implies a sort of a roundedness that mm-hmm. a good curb has, whereas a uh, the KE suggests a, a sort of hardness which will do more damage to your vehicle if you uh, run into it and is going to have fewer of those a uh, nice little uh, slopes and ridges for you to get your bikes and your bundle buggies over. So a uh, uh, curb uh, suggests with with a K suggests sort of an uncompromising bit of concrete.
1: And also, if you um, uh, if you think of it as a as a verb, you know, curb your enthusiasm, curb your dog. Um, spelling it with a K just makes it very mean.
0: Although the, are those other terms actually spelled with a K? Maybe that's a useful distinction that the uh, visual. Uh, K E shows you that it's a bit of uh, concrete rather than a uh, restraint that you place on something.
1: Well, maybe maybe in the um, uh, in the transatlantic uh, uh, world we can we can enforce that distinction. Although I I think C U is good for all of them really.
0: Now we come to one that is uh, fraught with class identity in the U K. Dun dun, dun 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 dun. And uh, if you ever want to uh, tease Simon Rogers about something, uh, you can I ask. God him. forbid. Uh, God forbid. <laughs> Uh he uh, professes not to, but he has great difficulty saying the word dessert instead of pudding. And uh, this has been a, a matter that we have uh, metaphorically chewed over many times, but I thought we would treat the podcast listeners to uh, what I fear will be our in- inevitable judgment on this one.
1: Yes. Um, I, I guess the argument, <laughs> and I dignify it with that term uh, unmeritedly, is that because dessert is from the French... Only social climbers use the word dessert, and so people who are confident in their social class use the word pudding. Which, if you avoid the completely ridiculous meretriciousness of it, I suppose makes a kind of sense.
0: And, and what also makes sense that all Americans use the word dessert, because all Americans are by definition social climbers.
1: And, uh, unconcerned with our, um, uh, with our class image. But also, it leaves you without, as we have <laughs> managed to wring from Simon, a word for pudding. You you do, you don't have a word for that delicious um uh gooey uh dessert that the uh, the jello people make. You 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 don't have anything to call that if everything is pudding.
0: Right, and it appears that there's such embarrassment around that that they don't even have that dessert and that's the real shame.
1: Yes. And you wind up saying idiotic things like pudding fork. Uh
0: which well, pudding wine nonsense. I think is the, the most unfortunate <laughs> one. <laughs>
1: pudding putting wine is unfortunate, but you could sort of see someone thinking that it was a good idea. Pudding fork it just It's an indictment of your pudding, which may be the case in Britain. But I, I, I think you're right that they just don't have pudding to avoid themselves the embarrassment of what to call it.
0: Now, this next one is one where the British one just sort of strikes me as old-timey. And I'm shocked to hear current people use it. And this is petrol versus gas. Uh, petrol has the advantage of being uh, more descriptive and so- sounds like a new name for something that was thought up when people started driving vehicles uh, with combustion engines. Uh, gas sounds like a pre-existing, obviously, word that was uh, yoked into use for yet another thing. So where do you uh, stand on the petrol-gas divide? Well, you
1: know, if I actually got to wave a magic wand, I wouldn't mind it being petrol in America. I think it's more fun. I think it, you you lose the... um. Uh, the ability to sort of conflate, you know, gas lines and gas pressure, that could cause all manner of hoop de when you're building an engine. I, I think that it's fun to have petrol. I think you, you're right, it's old-timey, but I think it's old-timey in that quaint, fun way that zeppelins are, not in that horrible way that, um, uh, um, you know, uh, smacking the, the wogs around and making them buff your shoes is. I, I like petrol. I, if I could call things petrol without bursting out into giggles, I would do it.
0: I'm unable to come down with that on you, on you, Ken, unfortunately, because it is so old-timey and so specifically British that it does make me think of, you know, Paddington Bear and uh, Penguin Editions, and I just, uh, I can't you see myself. that like that's a bad thing. Well, I just can't see myself saying it with a straight face. I can't see myself <laughs> incorporating that the way that I've incorporated other Anglicisms somehow. I just, uh, I can't step over the uh, petrol divide. But then again, I'm a a non-driver. So maybe, you know, if I were a driver, I could take more time to uh, build up to using uh, petrol.
1: Yeah. And again, as as an American, one is required to, to call it gas and flatten the A out to almost impenetrability. But Again, in my secret heart, I think it could be petrol and I wouldn't. Yes.
0: And, you know, when we do finally uh, run out of petroleum, it will seem more quaint and and not as serious a problem to say that we've run out of petrol.
1: And it it will be um, uh, liquefied natural gas by then. So we'll all have to call it gas, whether it's petrol or not.
0: Uh, Right. So the next one, uh, let's uh, stay with the world of uh, consumer products and go with plaster versus Band-Aid. Plaster versus Band-Aid. Again, plaster, it, 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 I feel for the
1: British who must have had such a horrible, impoverished life that they only have, you know, nine words and have to give them every meaning imaginable. A bandage or a band-aid is a thing. It's 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 unique little thing, whereas a plaster could be your wall. It could be um, a, a statuary component. It could be all manner of things. And and it's just nonsense to apply it to a Band-Aid as well. You might as well just call everything a courgette.
0: Yes, and and Band-Aid has the additional advantage of sticking it to the trademark man, because that's one of those originally trademarked terms that has become generic through years.
1: And Uh, and I suspect the Band-Aid people are
0: crying all the way to the bank about that. Yes. So uh I, I too have to side with you there that uh plaster uh is just a, another word that was uh yoked to a new purpose, uh and is uh not all that descriptive either because it, it no. makes me, you know, picture an actual cast or something.
1: Or someone slapping a bit of plaster on your hand and saying, They're there. That won't sting. It's not like you're in America where they have gauze.
0: Right. And and let's imagine you've got your uh uh mildly injured child who's uh, either going to be brave or start crying, depending on how you react. And uh, what do you want to say? Do you want to plaster with that? Or let me get you a Band-Aid. Aid Aid is in the word. It's helpful. It's friendly.
1: Yeah. And and, and it it, it just seems fun to say a Band-Aid. Or a plaster, the kid might think you're gonna plaster him one across the head. Exactly,
0: anything involving a plaster uh, cannot be good. A, a mustard plaster, plaster falling on your head—that's just bad news all around.
1: Well, none of it is good.
0: In a similar vein, still, bin liner versus garbage bag. Bin liner versus garbage bag. <laughs> your your
1: problem with petrol is my problem
0: with bin liner
1: multiplied by a million. <laughs> I can't even say bin liner on this podcast without laughing, and admittedly, perhaps you know, taking out the garbage is the time when you when you do need a a good chortle and saying you know oh must must refresh the bin liner, it, it, seriously you you just you'd be unable to breed I think if you kept saying that to yourself it, it, the, the, the 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 word is just ridiculous on the face of it, it, it it's great fun but you might as well call it the tiddly bidly I
0: don't know I, I prefer the gentility of bin liner. Uh, which does not necessarily indicate what is going to be put in the bin.
1: Oh yeah, it could be a bin full of uh, delicious, some um, uh, chocolate or rubies.
0: Right, just you know, it avoids me having to think about garbage. Uh, which is never a good word. It's never a happy word. But this the bin liner, this is telling you a positive thing. This is telling you that you're being protected, that the bin is being lined and is ready for whatever you're going to put in it. We don't need to discuss what that is. Um, and also the word garbage to me uh, resonates with uh labor that I'm going to have to perform Uh albeit minor labor, but I'm going to have to go down a couple of sets of stairs to take out the garbage.
1: As a husband, you should never downgrade the amount of labor involved in taking out the garbage.
0: Oh, well, yes, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's a almost nice Sisyphean task that uh, that awaits me every time I say, as soon as you pull out the garbage bag, you know that the future is going to be, you're having to carry the full garbage bag downstairs. Whereas Mm -hmm. bin liner puts off that uh, dread contemplation for a, perhaps days
1: maybe you're just preventing the bin from getting um uh juice on it or or perfume
0: uh, exactly uh, we can just stay happy at night knowing that the bin is lined whereas we have this psychic discontinuity knowing that the uh that there's garbage in the house still
1: yeah my my problem with bin liner was not that it did not make me happy i think that was sort of the
0: opposite <laughs> of my uh well we have a uh Few more minutes for this Galamafri, so let's just uh, uh, do a couple more, and then perhaps we will uh, have a son of word comparison come back at a later date. Let us do one article of clothing and uh, close out uh, our segment, and that is uh, let's end on an easy one: uh, jumper versus sweater. <laughs> well, um, <laughs>
1: the uh, it is it is an easy one, although I'm I'm actually kind of curious as to what you up in the Great White North are, are going to say, because I kind of feel like. You guys who have to wander around in the 12, uh, 11 months out of the year should get to decide what they should be called. But if you don't say sweater, I'm just going to laugh and point.
0: Of course it's sweater. There could be nothing okay. more Canadian <laughs> than a hockey sweater.
1: Right, yeah. Or uh, or, or a lovely sweater. Um, although Which, I did uh, have...
0: interestingly, is not actually a sweater. So we can go into that whole... Uh... <laughs> that whole millimosh,
1: yeah. The um, I d- I did have a lovely experience when I was last, fl- last flying to England. I was wearing a uh, a sweater that my wife had knitted me and the lovely british stewardess on british airways said brilliant jumper is it from the states <laughs> and that was that was my entire reaction it was just
0: helpless gales of laughter yeah so brilliant jumper is my favorite ub40 cover band
1: that that, that, that is you should you should hear their version of uh, red red pudding
0: it's um, <laughs> Uh, Well, we will save uh, some other clothing-related items for perhaps a return of this segment, or perhaps we will be pelted with comments on the site asking us never to pull this again.
1: To to place it in the bin liner and never think of
0: it again. (laughs) Uh, Yes, the bin liner of history.
1: Time, once again, to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Daniel Feidelman asks Ken and Robin, In Mirror Mode Knight's Black Agents, as well as other spy games in the same vibe, how do you build suspense about possible betrayals in the party without annihilating the said party too early or too utterly?
0: And people can perhaps figure this out from context, but in case there are any sad and benighted listeners who have not yet managed to acquire their copy of Knight's Black Agents and read it cover to cover, what is Mirror Mode? Mirror mode is the mode
1: of the game in which betrayal is considered to be a constant, that certainly everyone you meet is going to have double or triple agendas, your assets will not stay bought, your agents will be informing on you to the other side, and also there is a mechanic in the game, it's not mandatory, but there is a mechanic within the game for trusting the other players. And the more trust you give to the other players, the more they can help you, but also the more they can really, really hurt you. And the uh, the mechanic is one that I picked up out of The Mountain Witch by Tim Kleinert, which is a magnificent game, but it has a beautiful little mechanic by which, you know, betraying someone is triply as effective as helping them, given their trust for you. And I sort of lifted that for uh, the mirror mode rules in *Knights Black Agents. And I guess the, the question... That Daniel was asking is how do you stop uh, a Knights Black Agents in Mirror Mode game from immediately turning into a drawdown, a Mexican standoff, and a gunfight in the safe house that leaves the vampires secure in the absence of knowledge that
0: anyone was ever hunting them? Right, and that's an issue that actually is, is much wider than just Knights Black Agents because there's lots of games where you are going in knowing that it is essentially at some point a game of conflict within the player character group, and that can be a Skullduggery, it can be Fiasco, it can be uh, all sorts of things. You can set up a D&D game with the idea that everybody is going to betray each other. There is sort of a bit of that, albeit in a dysfunctional way built into the original OD&D assumption that you're going to have a paladin and a backstabbing thief in the same game. So how do you mediate, how do you, I guess if you zoom out a bit, it's a question of how do you pace something that is essentially under the control of players as to when they start to draw the knives as a uh, GM uh, who, you know, you would normally in a more standard mode of play have more control over the pacing because you are setting out obstacles in front of a group of people who you can expect to cooperate all the way through, and at some point here you've given everybody a lever to pull, and at some point, somebody's going to start pulling the lever. So how do you exert as a GM control over the pacing of that lever pull? Well, in of Black Agents, to begin
1: with, the amount of trust that you have builds over the game. So pulling the lever now is going to be less effective than pulling it later when they at least expect it. So the the rules sort of mechanically urge a sudden and inevitable betrayal to happen later. I think in Mountain, which it mechanically can't happen until the third act or something like that. Which is another thing, you can just arbitrarily say look guys, we all know this is happening but it's not happening until after X outer event and that's just a rule of the game and everyone deal with it. Or, you can do it narratively by providing them challenges that they know they have to work together to get past at least initially. And they think okay, we all have to team up and uh, fight off this ogre but Someday I'm going to be 5th level and I can kill an ogre by myself. And then that paladin had better watch out.
0: Right, and so what you do is as a GM, you build your chain of obstacles or your uh, more likely your agglomeration of potential obstacles such that the players have no reason, no incentive to start betraying one another until they trip a wire in one of those obstacles. And so that gives you the ability to have the players working together for a while because it doesn't... uh, Not only does it make the session too short, but it blunts the emotional impact of the betrayal unless you've seen everybody uh, working at least grudgingly together before somebody sticks the shiv in. So, for example, in one of the Dying Earth revivification folio scenarios, uh, which is very much a setting that is uh, based around betrayal and one-upsmanship, one of them is you are all going to this place and uh, you have different reasons to uh, seek this particular guy that you're trying to get, uh, but you have to get him, you have to find out who he is before you have any reason to betray each other over it. Or there's another scenario where you're sort of all lords of this town until the horrible festival happens where you you know something bad is coming, but you have a reason to band together at least until things start to go really wrong enough where you decide to cut bait and betray the other guys and have them eaten by the monster instead of you.
1: Another way to do it is to introduce a ringer, either an NPC or a player who's only going to be in it for the first session or two, and have them betray the party early, such that the rest of the party teams up to stomp on the traitor from within, quote-unquote. And that, first of all, it gets everyone's yayas out. It it gets that that, um, uh, sort of first blush of betrayal fun, over and done with, and also, ideally, it does enough damage that people think twice before they try it for the trivial reason of, uh, I was bored and I didn't want to go to Zurich, or whatever, that they wait until they really are going to be able to shop the people to the NSA or whoever.
0: Right, and uh, another way to do this that might introduce more uncertainty is just to structure each of your scenes or obstacles so that you're pulled and so that the choice offers an advantage whichever way you go, so that uh, if you choose to betray your fellow group members in the scene in the trash compactor, you can uh, get the advantage perhaps of surprise over them because neither of them have betrayed you yet but you will miss the opportunity to work together to get the red button opening and get through the trash compactor into the next area of the space installation and so what that then uh, does is as a gm as you're preparing your adventures or as an adventure writer allows you to seed the theme of betrayal into the practical obstacles that you are presenting the players with. And it also reminds you that every scene should have an important choice point, And here, the choice points, wherever possible, are to betray or not to betray.
1: Yeah, you can, you, you can introduce uh, things that are either, you know, sort of generically like that or specifically like that. The uh, room is filling with gas. One person can get through the event at a time. You know, that kind of question. And then it's, you, you add that tension, but... It's not the sort of thing where you know just pulling a gun and shooting someone is necessarily going to work or or solve the problem, and it's it, you, you sort of can downplay the the issue while still keeping it a major part of the subtext.
0: I guess another related question, because I think we've answered this question fairly thoroughly, is how to brace players for the spillover of emotion that results. Even when you know that you're playing a fiasco game or a skullduggery or whatever it is, something that you know is going to spiral out of control and have you at each other's throats, there is a level of competitiveness in any game that can sort of go awry and uh, spill away from the boundaries of good sportsmanship. And when you are emotionally identifying with a fictional character who you refer to as you, that increases the chances of that happening. Are there uh, tricks that you've learned along the way to deflate the emotional energy in the room when people start to unknowingly cross that boundary from playing a game about betrayal to feeling betrayed themselves? I don't know that I
1: ever got good at that. I think myself and my players have just aged to the point that our hormones are not writing all of our checks anymore. And so... When we are, in, are playing a game of, of betrayal or, or, or backstabbery, um, the, the, the personal component is less intensely there or less intensely felt or can be left at the table, even if it is very intensely felt. And I think that, um, for example, in uh, Hill Folk, uh, maybe it's just Steve Dempsey, but there's an awful lot of betrayal and backstabbing innate in those sorts of tangled family dynamic uh, settings that uh, the drama system encourages. I think maybe you are the guy to answer the question of how do you keep emotions at the table and not in the uh, actual game group, given that you've been running games literally designed to bring emotional desires into conflict and to frustrate at least half the players.
0: In drama system, that's baked into the mechanism in that you know that if you lose a scene, that you are rewarded for that. And that if you lose enough scenes, that gives you more power to choose to win a scene later on. So that that creates a sort of an an ameliorating dynamic right there, where you either get what your character wants, or you get a resource that you can use later. And sometimes in some groups, for example my home group, that uh, token is often not spent. It just sort of becomes a little image of status uh, and so people are happy enough to get them, even if they don't wind up using them. It's sort of a point of pride in this group almost to almost never use a force in the game. And that actually, when that happens, that makes the force even bigger. So, of course, as you suspect, that is, you know, deeply hard-coded in the very most important part of drama system. Other games where you are creating a dynamic of betrayal, I think you're important Weapon is irony to make sure that yeah, there is a great yeah, that you have a level of distance from the characters so that you can enjoy it when they win but also enjoy it when they face their inevitable comeuppance so that if you play uh, a mirror game of knights black agents you're I think going to have uh, have to be more careful about. Uh, Having realistically drawn characters betray one another in a relatively serious horror thriller uh, genre than you would say in Dying Earth, where it's actually disappointing if somebody doesn't get uh, screwed over, or, you know, and it can be just as much fun to get screwed over the way, you know, a properly stalwart Call of Cthulhu player is just as happy to get horribly. Uh, their character horribly killed, or preferably uh, driven insane, because that is part of the the fun that you have to embrace. But that is very much dependent on everybody grasping their requisite layer of irony.
1: Yeah the um, the the notion of playing a Knights Black Agents game in full on mirror mode, in which I, I think maybe one of the real keys to that is to have a third party to whom you can betray the the the, the other players. Because if you're betraying them to the vampires, that implies that the director has not done a good enough job of making the vampires really, really horrifying. But if you're betraying them to the Chinese or to the CIA, that's, you know, that's wrong and bad. But it's not quite the same as turning someone over to be, you know, turned into a a V8 uh, handy pack.
0: And I think the other weapon in general for this sort of... uh more overtly Machiavellian betrayal as opposed to the little emotional betrayals that you get all the time in drama system is a shortness of duration that it'd be, I think, much more fun to play a one-shot mirror mode uh, game or a mini-series than to, you know, play for half a year where you continue to betray each other because that... And even apart from the emotional issue, that just raises a question of how, how many... Narrative conceits. Do you need to keep the party together after they've betrayed each other umpteen times?
1: Yeah, I think another strong possibility is that um, uh, the the presumption should be that if you're the guy that betrays the party, your character gets to be an NPC, and you have to um, uh, you know be the you know the, the, the you and you and you can't uh, betray the next guy right or or whatever it is that there has to be sort of a a, a rolling turn in the spotlight there as as traitor. Because otherwise, first of all, you wind up splitting the party and doubling the work of the, of the director in a fairly annoying fashion unless he has, uh, you know, one of you eaten by vampires pretty, uh, too sweet. So I, th- I think that maybe that's another assumption. You can have that fun, but, you know, that's gonna be it. And then you are going to get to join in the thrilling hunt for your former player character, uh, with all the glory of vengeance, uh, slavering at your jaws.
0: Right, and that brings to mind a, another topic for a future session, which is fun things you can do with special guest players. Oh, uh, where yeah. you can make your uh, player the uh, ringer. I have an epic story to tell on that front, but since we've shifted uh, topics yet again, it's time for our final segment. We now enter part four of our epic multi-part series of The Consulting Occultist, drawn from Ken's book, The Nazi Occult, which he wrote for the Osprey Adventures line and the uh, Osprey Dark subline of the Osprey Adventures line. And that is a work of imaginative nonfiction or fictional reality or however you want to put it. But here on the podcast, we're looking at aspects of Nazi occultism and uh, trying to stick within the historical lines, and this time we're come to a part of the subject that Uh, Hitler himself gets closest to, if there's any uh, occultic or quasi-occultic thing that the uh, Fuhrer himself was interested in, it would be the Spear of Destiny. So, Ken, could you start off by telling us what the Spear of Destiny is in mythology before uh, those uh, horrible uh, psychopaths that we've been spending so much time discussing got their grubby little hands on it? Well, the
1: interesting thing, of course, is the
0: the mythology
1: of the Spear of Destiny as we understand it, post-date those grubby psychopaths, and was in, in vast part created in order to, um, uh, you know, exploit the uh, thrills and imagery of the grubby psychopaths in question. The Spear of Destiny is the title of a book written in 1971 or 72 by a man named Trevor Ravenscroft, who wrote it under the twin influences of poverty and heroin, and it reads very much like that.
0: Uh, one of which sometimes leads to the other.
1: Yeah, it, it, but I think in this case it was a beautiful, uh, mutually reinforcing pact uh, for for him. The um, 73 was when the Spear of Destiny was written. But he uh, came up with the title Spear of Destiny, he invented the part in which uh, the wielder of the Spear of Destiny is undefeatable in battle, and he conflated uh, the two main holy spears, uh, the holy spear in Rome and the holy lance in Vienna, that uh are sort of brought together under the rubric of the spear of destiny but the general understanding post ravenscroft post 73 is that the spear that pierced Christ's side that the legionary used to to give Christ the mercy blow on uh that Fri on good friday became a sacred object imbued with the power of of Jesus and it was born in secret by christian legionaries uh, beginning with Cas- with casca who um uh, or longinus rather who um, stabbed Christ with it, and then passed it down to uh, all the major uh, military martyrs of uh, the Roman hagiography, and then uh, was miraculously discovered by uh, St. Helena of the Blessed Shroud in Jerusalem, brought uh, to uh, Rome, and given unto Charlemagne, who wore it against the pagan Saxons, and uh, from various other uh sorts of uh hands it went into the uh the, the, the other German emperors after Charlemagne. Napoleon uh coveted it, seized it in Vienna, uh carried it uh apparently to <laughs> horrible defeat because he was winning until he took Vienna, uh, in actual history. But the the myth is that Napoleon had the spear and that was what made him so Napoleony. And then of course Hitler gets a hold of the spear when the Anschluss makes Austria Part of the Third Reich in 1938 and Hitler of course uses the magical power of the spear to make the blitzkrieg work up until it doesn't and it is at that point that the question of how come the spear doesn't actually work is elighted by your Trevor Ravenscrofts usually with something about the Nazis being mean and the spear being holy and what part of holy lance did you not off during? Which seems to be a fairly decent explanation as far as I'm concerned.
0: It does seem to imply a somewhat inattentive lance.
1: Yes, right. The, oh, right, Hitler. Sorry, I was I was thinking about uh, St. George, who was so awesome. Yeah, anyway, n- normally
0: we add artifacts, melt these guys right away, but I was, <laughs> sort of, right. I was preoccupied. Yeah, when 1600 years old you are, you, this distracted you will be. <laughs> yes, so this then is not, uh, in fact, in real history, a case of Nazi occultism, but about occultism about Nazis. Yes, although So, the actual
1: spear in Vienna that is a a physical spear, you can go to Vienna, you can look at that spear in the Hofburg Museum. Uh, Hitler went to the Hofburg Museum when he was a poor art student in Vienna and uh, needed to get out of the snow and would look at the spear along with the other uh, relics of the uh, Habsburg dynasty. There is nothing in Hitler's writing that indicates he coveted the spear. It's not like, you know, Mein Kampf is like, and then I'm going to take the spear of destiny and I'm going to be awesome. Or even I'm going to gain the regalia of the uh, Habsburg emperors. It's just that as a transplanted German nationalist, he wanted the spear to go back to Nuremberg, which had been the home of the spear for uh, 400 years between the time that it was... um, Born by the various kings of Germany, and when the Habsburgs snaked it out of Nuremberg, uh, ironically, to keep it safe from Napoleon in 1796. Uh, and so Hitler was given the spear by uh, the SS when they took over Austria, so that he could bring it back to the Nazi cult center of Nuremberg and reinforce his sort of mystical operatic claims to be the new... Uh, Führer, the 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 great, uh, divinely inspired leader of Germany, and because of his obsession with the uh, opera Parsifal, he was very into spears, which is, because the spear is a huge symbol within the opera Parsifal. So Hitler probably thought of the spear in that sense as a mystical artifact or an, or a symbol, but not so much as I'm going to hold this spear and do magic and I'm going to be awesome. It's that. As a Parsifal figure, my destiny is to carry a spear back to the sacred heart of Germany and um, uh, redeem Germany with it. And so, to the extent that he's using the spear for anything, it's that combination of propaganda and mania that marks pretty much everything Hitler does in public.
0: Right. So, real Hitler, as opposed to imaginary Hitler, is not making an a, a cult act. It's just a symbolic act with, right. you know, and certainly he was very interested in things, mythic resonance, but this was not a mythic resonance that uh, he had any, as far as we know, thought that this would break through to change events in the real world.
1: Right. Well, although again, you have to look at the fact that he's part of this movement that believes that engaging in mythologically significant actions does change the real world. That's why you have the swastika as your symbol. That's why you Um, uh, You know, it's the same thing that the socialists are doing with the notion of the myth of the general strike. Uh, Sorrell knows that there can't ever be a general strike, but if enough people believe in the general strike, it'll be the same thing as having a general strike. The Nazis had the same sort of (laughs) quasi-rational approach to uh, political action.
0: Well, I guess that raises a larger question of, is propaganda mythic? And uh, if so, does that make propaganda occultic? And uh, I would think that just out of uh, economy of terms yeah. that you you can make that analogy, but I don't think that you can certainly certainly in terms of you know communist propaganda that that is not the mindset that a uh, any sort of mystical or otherworldly impact is being made through propaganda. Just that uh, symbolism is part of human psychology, uh, which is part of the materialistic world. So. Are, are we beginning to edge toward more of a definition, though, where uh, uh, real-life Hitler as opposed to imaginary Hitler did have uh, at least this sort of um, low-level of uh, occult mythic belief? Are we, change- are we uh, edging away from our thesis that uh, he was uninterested in all that stuff? Well, he's
1: uninterested in the occult portion of it. And again, when you make that distinction, you have to realize that Hitler has nothing but contempt for that. But he did see himself as a world historical figure in just the same way that, you know, the president of the United States has the Marine Band play Hail to the Chief when he comes into the room, because that's part of the aura of power. He doesn't believe that Hail to the Chief gives him the magic ability to get things through Congress. But what he believes is that it is consonant with the role of being president to that same level. Hitler believed that the role of Fuhrer, a world historical role created by the German people's destiny, has to have a certain amount of um, uh, of glory attached to it, and that glory can come through actions that uh, heroin addicts in 1973 can call magical.
0: Right, and I guess what we're looking for in terms of describing the real world is the classic distinction between ceremony and ritual. Right, that a yeah. ceremony is something that is done and repeated in order to have an emotional effect on the, uh, and usually a bonding effect on the people who take part in it and witness it. Whereas a ritual is something that is intended to create some supernatural or uh, otherworldly or metaphysical effect beyond that simple emotional impact that people feel. And it would be much easier to keep making that distinction if people didn't keep using those two words as synonyms.
1: And if they didn't keep doing rituals for ceremonial effect and vice versa. Right. So anyway, the, the back to the spear... The spear in Austria, the actual physical spear, is probably the uh, spear that was used by the kings of the Lombards. It's been uh, uh, tested, and the um, uh, spearhead comes probably from the 6th century, 7th century AD. It's about the right age to be the spear that was used by the Lombards. To um, indicate that they were the, uh, you know, the, the, the king of the Lombards would hold up that spear and say, no one can take the spear away from me. They were, um, uh, the royal family is called the Gungini, meaning the uh, bearers of Odin's lance or Votan's lance, Gungnir. So, therefore, by holding Odin's lance, they indicate that they are Odin-chosen and Odin-descended kings of the Lombards. Then when the king of the Lombards became Christian... He was given a uh, one of the nails that uh, was identified as one of the nails that uh, the, the the true na- the true nails of the true cross, and had that put into the haft of the spear so that it would be even more awesome. It would be combining Odin magic and Jesus magic for double magic power.
0: Right, and therefore sending us up for spear conflation.
1: Spear conflation, right. The, meanwhile, the spear that is. The actual spear that pierced Christ's side to the extent that we know that that spear exists, which is to no extent whatsoever. Because it was, again, found by St. Helen of the Blessed Shroud, uh, in, in any number of uh, conveniently marked uh, piles of freshly dug earth in Jerusalem in the fourth century. Um, and this is and Constantine's was, mom, right? This is the mom of, of em- the Emperor Constantine. So it is possible that he carried that spear ceremonially into the Battle of Milvian Bridge, which would be, you know, one of those cases in which the Spear of Destiny says,
0: Uh, Guy who likes Christians, guy who doesn't like Christians, I'm picking A. Right, and Constantine's mom was the one who went around Jerusalem having visions and basically establishing all of the uh, traditional locations of all of the events in in the New Testament. Right, because you had
1: to have pilgrimage sites if you're going to collect pilgrim taxes and um, uh, put the whole thing on a paying basis, which is never far from Constantine's mind. But that spear, that physical spear, whether it's the magical spear... Uh, or the sacred spear that actually pierced Jesus' side, or just the really neat spear that Constantine carried around at the Battle of Milvian Bridge, was kept with one or two interruptions in Byzantium until uh, 1492, when the uh, uh, Ottoman sultan who had captured Byzantium in 1453 needed something to give the pope so that he would not release his crazy uh, brother Cem and cause a civil war in the Ottoman Empire. And so he, you know, looking around the treasure room said, I'll bet that the Pope would like the spear that pierced Jesus's side and sent that as sort of a, uh, don't release gem offering <laughs> to Pope Innocent. Pope Innocent immediately, uh, popped it underneath the, um, uh, St. Peter's Basilica and the, you know, the Vatican doesn't make a giant big deal about it. They don't, um, they don't exhibit it or or march it around in in circles. They just say, "Yep, got the spear. We're the pope."
0: They've got so many artifacts to choose from. It's well,
1: they I mean, it, it shows I think a certain you know um, uh, you know it, it's like the t- Tom Landry used to say you know act like you've been there before. <sighs> if you make a giant deal about having the spear of destiny, you probably don't deserve to have the spear of destiny, frankly. But the um, uh, but the magical spear, the the holy spear, the sacred spear, whatever spear it is that is underneath the basilica in Rome. You know the Nazis never bothered to go after it. They they didn't you know dig up the Vatican. They didn't even bother asking uh, Pope Pius to give it to them. They just ignored that spear because they had the spear that really mattered to them, which was the spear that was a emblem of sacred Germanic kingship, the the the, the lance of Vienna. And my favorite wrinkle on it is that of course the spear is taken back to Nuremberg. It's put in the in St Catherine's Cathedral, which is immediately bombed by the British so they think oh that's a terrible idea and they take the spear and they move it to a school which is immediately bombed by the british and a lesser mind would think I, there's a story like this in the bible about the ark of the covenant but nope, the nazis <laughs> take it and bury it in a in a in a in a it's not a mine shaft but it's like a sub cellar underneath another building which is not bombed by the british or if it is it doesn't get through to the spear and then general patton finds it when he liberates nuremberg and of course what this means is that the spear of destiny is in the hands of easily the most occult American general. Patton believed in reincarnation. He believed in uh, the spiritual continuity of, of warriors. He had all kinds of. If there was one American general who wanted to use a magic spear to beat everybody, it would be Patton. And so the the, the theory that some conspiracy theorists have is that Patton immediately goes to uh, you know a, a Jewish metalsmith who's just been released from the camps and says, make me an identical copy of this spear and gives the copy of the spear back to Vienna and has the real spear of destiny smuggled back to America where it's put in the um, uh, basement of the Pentagon uh, to uh, ensure American predominance for the rest of time. And I think that is the best conspiracy theory you're ever going to get about the spear. And sadly, it is not Trevor Ravenscroft's uh um, crazy spear uh, conspiracy, I don't believe. Uh,
0: so whose is it?
1: I think it may it, it may have been um, just sort of come up with in the general theory that Ravenscroft has Patton get the spear, and then um, because Patton gives the spear up, that's why he his uh, jeep drives over a landmine and he dies. And I think that it may have just been the first American to read that said, oh, that's not at all what Patton does with the spear, you crazy British person, you heroin addict. I don't remember the name of the person or if there was a single person who came up with it but I've I've seen that the Patton uh substitute theory a, a couple of places a guy named Howard Buchner says that the Nazis built a, subs- a fake spear and sent the real spear to Antarctica um Howard Buchner has written a number of uh very enthusiastic books about the Nazi occult which I uh try not to hit use as prime source material but they 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 have a certain verve and brio to them. And he is maybe where the forged Nazi spear uh, enters that, that uh, bloodstream. That that came out in, uh, I think, the late 70s. He wrote his book. And so maybe the, some anonymous hero conflated Buchner's forged spear with Ravenscroft's. Patton had the spear and then he was cursed and, and got my, my favorite Patton theory. But if no one wants to step forward, I'll take credit for it right now.
0: And in non-conspiratorial history, where did this spear wind up?
1: The spear from Vienna went back to Vienna. You can see it in the, in the museum. I have friends who've gone to Vienna and reported back to me that the spear of destiny did indeed look very destinalicious. Uh, there is also a holy spear in Armenia that the Armenians insist is a, uh, is the holy spear brought to them by the apostle Thaddeus and that just because you've never heard of it doesn't mean that it's not real. Screw you. You're not Armenian. Uh, there was also, uh, the holy lance turned up in Antioch uh, during a siege and then vanished almost immediately, which makes me think that some uh, local bishop had a good idea for what would keep people's spirits up during a siege in Antioch. So there's a number of other spears sort of floating around, but the the, the really awesome spear, the the one with the um uh, with with the with the with the Nazi mojo, is is back in Vienna, uh, shining away to this day, unless of course it's in the deepest subchamber of the Pentagon. Right,
0: or and you can think of it as having Nazi mojo, or as having bomb attracting mojo. Bomb, um, it, 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 and why not both? Much like the Nazis themselves. Right. Um, So uh, this then provides something that is a great MacGuffin for any uh, adventure or pulp story or uh, that you want to uh, build into this era where uh, you've got a a thing that you can go and get and is therefore the most concrete of our uh, elements here in this series on the Nazi occult.
1: Yeah, it, it it makes a terrific MacGuffin. It has its own superpowers. It's the sort of thing that a player character would want because it, it makes you invulnerable in battle. There was a movie a while back that um, the Spear of Destiny was the only thing that could kill a Nazi gargoyle, that the Nazis had found a gargoyle and, and brought it to life with Nazi necromancy, and the gargoyle was flying around killing people, and that only the spear could uh, could kill um, the, the gargoyle, and so they had to go find the Spear of Destiny. This is I think the movie was set in World War II, and so it's brave Americans finding it in the rubble of Nuremberg and using it to kill the gargoyle. The, there was another one in which, if you were wounded by the spear, your blood became magically powerful. So that's the sort of thing where if the if the Knights nice Black agents can break into the Hofburg and cut themselves on the spear of destiny, then their blood becomes uh, holy blood and the vampires can't drink them, which I think would be a neat um, uh, caper to, to set up, or at least to have someone... Uh, uh, believe in the, in the context of your campaign.
0: You just don't want to find afterwards that it makes you super tasty. No. It, 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 or that it attracts bombs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it attracts vampires and bombs. Why not both? Good news, vampires
1: won't get you, but bad news, predator missiles can't stay away.
0: Um, so I think we have uh, well covered uh, this object lesson of the Nazi occult, so to speak, and can declare our, uh, ourselves one installment closer to victory.
1: Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors:
0: Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music as always is by James Semple. Get petrol near the parking lot at kennethrobintalkaboutstuff
1: dot or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height, and he's at Robin D Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff.